Hey, everybody, welcome into the Raw Knuckles podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you'd like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Did you have anyone that you like? Who is your best storyteller that you ever came across in your career? Do you have anyone in mind? Well, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Chris is pretty good, as you know. <laughs> you know, when he, yeah, of course, he tends to ramble. He's oh, already, yeah, uh, I can go. Boston, I can go. That Boston <laughs> accent. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down and I never stayed down. And I was vicious and I was malicious and I don't care. <laughs> Michael, welcome um, uh, to the podcast. Appreciate it that you took the time today to come on with Knuckles and Tim Stapleton. I introduced you to Timothy. Uh, Michael. Nice to see you, Tim. You I'm sure at oh, one good. point you must have covered Tim in the NHL. Tim played in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. Um, a uh, little bit, Winnipeg. So uh, you probably saw him play and didn't even know it. Yeah, he, yeah, probably, Goog prob he probably Googled me <laughs> just right before he got out. So. No, I Googled you a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. That's, we're about honesty, honesty here. I like Yeah, it. and preparation. But, Mike, <laughs> I, I'm so, listen, I've always uh, – jeez. When I think of the uh, – you being a, an American from – New Jersey, from Bayonne, New Jersey, yep. myself being a Bostonian, two Americans, and we both end up in Montreal. We end up in the Canadians' locker room. I know what it was like for me the first time I ever walked in that locker room. What was it like for you? Well, I had covered the Rangers for a little while for a newspaper in New Jersey, and when Montreal came to New York to the garden and to see those red sweaters it was something I mean, it was different you knew you were in the presence of royalty and now fast forward to 1979 and there I am and I'm walking in and there's Dryden and there's Lafleur and there's Robinson and there's Savard and Cornway was hurt most of the time that season uh, but there are some of the, not only the best players in the game, but some of the most important historically. It was like walking into Yankee Stadium at dusk when it looked so green and so beautiful and so pristine, and then there'd be monuments out in center field. Well, here the monuments were living, breathing athletes. I was overwhelmed. Yeah, uh, and being overwhelmed, I, I, I had the same feeling, honestly, when I was overwhelmed in a different way. I, again, these athletes you're talking about were the athletes I hated through my childhood growing up in Boston because the Canadians always beat my beloved Bruins in the playoffs. I, I Lafleur, Robbins, I couldn't stand them. I, these guys, we could never beat them. And now I'm joining them. If you can't beat them, join them. But, it, God, it was such a different time. And you talked about Conway being hurt mostly that year. And I remember coming in that first training camp in 79. It was 79-80 my first year, going for the fifth in a row. 
and Conway retired. Lemaire left. But there was still some remnants of those guys around. Savard, Lafleur, Lapointe. So I played with those greats, and it, it was it was awesome. What what was the hockey? What was the few? You get out of um, uh, Rutgers, you do some work for the Bergen Record. What was it that drew you to hockey? Why not basketball? Rutgers big basketball football program. What draws you to hockey? Well, when you move, you have to become local, and you know that, Chris. Yeah. Uh, you can't say, oh, back where I'm from, you know, this is how we do it. Well, I was here. And it, if you were going to be a sports writer in Montreal at that time, you had to know baseball. And I'd covered the Yankees in 77 and 78. But you also had to know about the Canadiens. And yeah, I knew about the Canadians. I'd covered hockey, but I spent a lot of time in the morgue, as it's known, the library of the Montreal Gazette reading, reading about the history of the club. So I could go in there and not be an outsider while understanding that I couldn't be anything but an outsider because where I came from. One of the great things, and I think Tim can see this, is that hockey players at that time were open were more open. Uh, the Canadians players used to gather at that brasserie in Alexis Neon for lunch, and I would join them. I was always welcome to join them. And the players would talk, and that was the only way you could get to know the players or know the game. So this is where I learned the game. These were my tutorials. Now, you're a different generation, Tim, right? Uh, did you open up to writers in the same way? No, usually writers didn't, like I was kind of not the first choice to, to talk <laughs> to, but, but uh, no, I kind of got the end of that. I um, I got the end of like the old school where like when we would go on the road, guys would go out and stuff and, and there would be, uh, you know, report, as far as reporters, they would be around. But like today I can see with all the social media, it's like guys, I don't know, the game's I, I talk to guys that are still playing. They're like, guys, there's like video game tournaments happening like on the road. And, and yeah, it's not so much about, you know, the team being together. And definitely, like you said, it's definitely not as open uh, as it used to be for sure. So so that, um, you know, going to Cabinet was the, uh, the place. Um, and I've been there many a time. But, you know, when I came into Montreal, I felt this. And again, I felt a little bit of that adversarial bit between athletes in the media. You know, I had people, you know, of course, Redfish is walking around the room like he's the grand poobah and wanted everybody to say, he wouldn't talk to rookies. He wanted everybody to say, who's that guy over there? Exactly what I did. He, he walked around the room every day, never came near me where all the other media come and talk to me. And I leaned over to Bob Ganey one day and I said, hey, who's that guy over there? He said, oh, that's Red Fisher. He doesn't talk to rookies. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. And I finally got it. And I watched him over the years do the same gig. But that adversarial, it surprises me that you were over there with them because, you know, that there was a bit of, like I said, us against them when it came to the media and players. Do you have, listen, you're very disarming. But there, there's certainly some people 
they're not disarming and people they're not trusted and i think do you see that relationship well, maybe, did you see it when you first come in uh perhaps i did but you know i was lucky um uh, because you didn't go to write stories. You went to learn about the game. And, and that's one of the things I think that penalizes younger reporters. They don't get that opportunity. And that's why, and you and I have discussed this, Chris, why so many have to be dependent on analytics and on numbers, because they don't have the privilege of telling stories any other way. And analytics are great because it's information uh, but it doesn't take the human element into it. And if you look at civilizations, and if you look at the course of human history, storytelling is the primal imaginative act. That if you go back to cave dwellings, there weren't any decimal points in cave dwellings, right? They were telling stories about the hunt, and they were doing it with pictures, and we were doing it with words. And players, I got to know players. I got to trust. They, I got to trust them, and they got to trust me. I was on a flight one time. It was a. It was Vancouver and St. Louis, and the Canadians were flying, a commercial, and it was a big plane. I think a seven forty-seven, and I'm talking to Steve Shutt. And he says, watch this. He says, you see all those writers? They're watching Flower. They're watching Guy Lafleur to see when he starts his second drink. He'll finish his first, get his second. And once he has a sip or two of his second drink, they'll drift over. And that'll be their story for tomorrow, whatever Flower says. And it's exactly what happened. You know, I was, and so I had people like Steve Shutt and others who guided me to explain what was really going on and, and how things worked. I tried to be fair. Um, perhaps I wasn't always, but that was how I viewed things. And, uh, and I got along, for the most part, pretty well with the athletes I covered. Did you have anyone that you, like who was your best storyteller that you ever came across in your career? Do you have anyone in mind? Well, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Chris is pretty good, as you know. <laughs> you know, when, yeah, of course he tends to ramble. He's oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, I can go, Boston, I can but go. But that Boston <laughs> accent. Yeah, but the Boston accent, I mean, come on, enough of that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there, there were guys in sports, and I would, if not glom on to them, I would pay attention to them. And, and the, one of the teams I really liked, and before I got to Montreal, was the Islanders teams of the late 70s into the 80s. Those are great teams. They could beat you any way. That, you wanted to play a certain style, they could play yeah. it. You, know, you could play a one nothing game or a 6-5 game. Didn't matter. They'd still beat you. They, they and they had so many interesting guys on that team uh, that I loved being around them because they were good at their jobs and they were able to explain it to someone like me. And, and so I have a particular fondness. So I'm fond of smart, and that was true of the Baltimore Orioles under Earl Weaver. 
Uh, it was true with several Canadians teams, including the teams that I inherited in 79-80 and again in the late 80s. Montreal had really interesting teams. And the Islanders teams, uh, particularly fond of them as well. And I think I always pretty got, got along pretty good with uh, the media. There were some guys I kind of wanted to steer clear of. What do you think about some of the guys that write, and I'm sure you crossed paths with some of these people over the course of your career, guys that write not with pen but with knife? I didn't write with a knife. Oh, I know I, you didn't. I'm just saying, what do you think I about wrote with, those that do? Well, you know, some guys type with their fists. <laughs> you know, if I was going to get a guy, and I got guys, I, I tend to do it with a, you know, little, little pinprick. And, and, and yeah, and, and I did that. And, and Stefan Richet, one day, uh, I, I got Stefan Richet. And this was after a Humpty Dumpty practice. You remember those? Oh, yeah. They let all the kids in yep. Montreal once a year. <laughs> 18,000 kids get in free. And Richet, who was a hell of a goal scorer, right? Two. 250 goal seasons in a three-year span, gets booed by these, well, what's your phrase, Chris? Snot-nosed little yep. kids? Yeah, snotty-nosed little kids. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was that was horrible. So I was at this practice on Sunday, and I went to talk to Richet afterwards and asked him about it. And he was down. I mean, it really affected him. So he started telling me about these astrologers that he's going to. He said he consulted three different astrologers. Well, you know, maybe there's some people who are listening who are fans of astrology. But damn, I thought that was ridiculous. And I wrote a column for the following day in the Gazette that suggested if he were going to have open heart surgery, he wouldn't seek that many opinions. <laughs> no. I mean, come on, three astrologers? <laughs> what, what, what's that? And in the course of this column, uh, I described him as Brett Hull without the head. <laughs> so I walk into the room the next oh. day because you write, you write something that's tough, uh, you show up, yeah. right? I walk into the room and he's screaming, cheap shot, cheap shot. And I'm thinking, eh, which one? <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking it's going to be the astrologer thing. And what bothered him was I called him Brett Hull without the head. <laughs> and I, I said, listen, you're bigger than Hull. Your shot's every bit as good. You're a better skater. He says, well, how can you compare me? He makes $2 million a year and I make 700000 I said, well, clearly this is not about money. I mean, that's part of the problem. You know, that's about your head. And I said, tell you what, I'm going to go home and read the column again. I'm going to come back here tomorrow and we'll talk about it. I went home and I read it, came back the next day. I said, Stefan, I wouldn't change a word. And I got a, and I'll paraphrase here, screw you, Usty. And, and we didn't talk for years. But it, it was so important that as a columnist, you had to have an opinion, but you also had to be fair. And honestly, Tim, I didn't think I was being unfair to Richet. 
And there's a postscript here. I saw him, you know, when he was in New Jersey, I talked to him a little bit. And years later, I saw him in a, a restaurant uh, in Hudson, Quebec. And he greeted me like his long-lost brother. So I guess everything's good. Yeah, he let it slide finally, huh? I, I, I look at both of them. They both don't have heads. So I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about, Hall having a head. Well, well, I don't wait get a minute. that. Now, as a player, oh, okay. I mean, who got, to, who got to seams better than Brett Hall? I mean, who knew when to be where he had to be? Yeah. And I thought Riche, with his physical tools, could be that player. No question. And you, you brought Sports Illustrated up and obviously writing for them um, for all those years, uh, some really big stories. And a couple I remember, Hockey's Little Helpers, right, about Sudafed, yeah. um, which I have popped a few back in my day. Uh, and, and that's all I did when I played. Now, there were a couple times in the off season I – Pot took in some things I probably shouldn't have, but very rarely. Um, and we know what happened to Knuckles afterwards. We, we won't talk about that right now. But a friend, um, and I want to get to, especially at that time, writing that story, uh, Life of the Party, about Kevin Stevens. Like, yeah. you know, here you are covering all these <laughs> fine-tuned athletes all these years, and and... Then you got Kevin all of a sudden. It's a, that was a huge, huge story at the time. Now we see guys, they have problems, they come out. A lot of guys go into the behavioral health program. And, and maybe it's not so, I mean, we just saw it with Kerry Price. It's not so like, wow. But Kevin Stevens back in the day was kind of, wow. How big a story was that for you? That was a big story for me. Uh, I had thought until last year that the words crack hole <laughs> had appeared in Sports Illustrated for the first and only time. So I went back and read the story and it was edited out, which tells you that this, the magazine is still in school libraries. Uh, but, I mean, Kevin Stevens, I mean, Art, Artie's a popular guy, yeah. right? I mean, he, he was a terrific left winger and a popular guy. You know, but he had a problem, and a big problem, and it could have gotten him killed, as the police in East St. Louis, Illinois, pointed out to us. Uh, and he had powerful friends in the game, including Mario Lemieux and, and Wayne Gretzky. They were friends. And uh, th this was written over a weekend at the All-Star Game in Toronto in 2000. So while everyone else is out doing all-star stuff i'm in a hotel room putting this piece together and i had some help with the reporting it, it, it was a, a tough story to do because what you're doing is you are taking a snapshot of somebody's life and exposing it to at the time 3.2 million subscribers of sports illustrated and there are other things about Kevin Stevens, right? That's not the only thing, uh, but this this was a, a, a big story, and certainly what I hope was an utterly accurate portrayal of who he was at that particular moment. But sometimes we have to remember that's not the only moment. 
you are taking a tranche, a, a slice of somebody's life and, and presenting it. And we go back to what we were talking about earlier, fair. And uh, I actually went back, as I mentioned, and read the piece a couple of years ago. And I, I think it holds up. Yeah. So, Mike, um, you cover hockey. You moved to Montreal. You cover hockey. So, safe to say, if Danielle um, was from England, you'd be covering soccer. Yes or no? Uh, that's very fair. But I, I will say this about Quebec women. <laughs> They're like Guinness. They don't necessarily travel well, in my experience. <laughs> They're, their best consume at the place of origin so yeah so uh, i got here in 79 she didn't like new jersey okay so we'll try uh we'll try montreal and actually uh, i took out citizenship here in 2017 i think it's been five yeah. years now so i'm a dual citizen good for you and i'm still a um permanent resident and may at some point um venture that way actually you're the one who prodded me into becoming a permanent resident and i did uh and i thank you for that um you know and i said that covering you would have been covering soccer if you're over there um but sure. you're here and it's hockey if there's one event in sports you could cover that you haven't yet what would it have been or what would it be? I don't know, uh, because again, I've had front row seats. You know, covered the World Cup. Uh, I've covered eighteen Olympics. Um, You've done it all. Stanley Cups, obviously. Uh, yeah, and I have no desire to go to Augusta to see you know I, guys in. It's funny. I was thinking you know, of Augusta. How is that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I like to play golf, and I like to play golf because once you get through the hurdles and the barriers to play golf and the snobbishness and all that other stuff, it's only about the number on the scorecard. It's a meritocracy, and that's what ultimately I like about golf. You're not discriminated against because of that terrible Boston accent you have, right? <laughs> or, or, or anything else. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's you, and that's the nice thing. So, you know, I, I, I don't, don't need to do that. Okay, you don't but, need to do uh, that. Well, let me phrase it another no. way. God. How about you as a young lad watching monumental sporting events as a young lad? And I can think of a few, and I'm sure you can too. Which one would you have loved to have been there and covering it? The first championship game I ever saw, and that was the Boston Celtics and the San Francisco Warriors, Russell against Chamberlain. And I would have been, I think, 12 or 11. And in those days, your mother puts you on a train when you're 11 or whatever in Newark, and your uncle picks you up at, South Station, I yeah. would guess. And uh, takes you to the garden, and you see the deciding the game of the championship. The, the garden. garden, excuse me. And, you know, in the following year, you know, I got to see a World Series game. So, so those kinds of things. You know a story that I want to write and I never had a chance? And did you, Tim, I didn't Google you well enough. Did you, 
did you ever play in Europe? Yeah, I, most of my career was over in Russia. I played about eight or nine years of my career over in Russia and Europe. Okay, uh, play in Switzerland? I played in Switzerland, yes. So you played in Ambry Piotta? I played in Ambry, like a half outdoor rink, I think. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. wanted to see Ambry Piotta play Lugano. I played for Lugano when I played there. When oh, I played man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here's your guest. You don't need me, Chris. Jeez. Because, I mean, this is, you got the rich team against the, the people's team. They sing the Internationale in that, that rink. The, the wind comes whistling into that thing in, in, from that pass. And, and I've heard stories, and it's a great rivalry. And, you know, rivalries excite me, right? When you're playing Boston oh. in the 80s, that excites me. Right, because rivalries are lifebloods of the game. There is nothing better than teams where it really matters, and that's one of the uh, one of the stories that I'd really like to write or do a TV thing on. Because I things that matter uh, to people, I want to know about. So those rivalries, and we talk about it. You brought it up, Boston, Montreal, in uh, hockey. We know the uh, Yankees, Red Sox, and the Celtics, Lakers, right? Great rivalry. Yeah, I mean, these were great during the 76ers in the Celtics for a while. I mean, that was terrific. But Montreal and Boston played each other so often that I knew – where Ray Bork would stand for the national anthem and when he, precisely when he would cross himself before the game. And this is, you know, I, I loved watching these games and I enjoy, I got a kick out of your being part of it because at that time, you know, the, the game was a little bit different. I, I think I've always been drawn, Tim, to to NHL fighters because I think I have some understanding of how difficult the job is. I think Kelly Chase once described it to me as you're sitting in school the whole day and you're waiting for the bell to ring at 3 o'clock knowing that you're going to have to fight the toughest kid in school. or You might have to every day. And it's tough to think about your math equations or, or you know French when you're getting ready to do that. But with very few exceptions, in my experience, did fighters do something for their own ego. They were doing it if for their teammates, for the logo, that there was, it was generally a violent act, but it was rooted in selflessness. And I can think of a couple others that, well, I, I had a player once stop me in the, in the visiting dressing room. I was in Edmonton, and he grabbed me and said, hey, I've had 28 fights this year, and I started 26 of them. <laughs> well, you know, that's not about selflessness. But in general, this is why I always had so much time for people who fought. Well. No, I, I think... I, I think uh... You said it perfectly about fighters. They're 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 complete opposite of what they are on the ice. They're usually the nicest guys in the locker room. They're the best teammates, and I, I would it makes sense why you'd want to get to know them because it, it's just, I mean not many people like they're the complete opposite of what most people would think they would be. Like are they mean? Are they 
you know, what kind of guy is he? And it's like, actually, he's a pretty down to earth, like just, you know, um, very loyal. Um, and I have a lot of respect, obviously, for what Chris did and, and, and teammates of mine that did that. Um, speaking of that, did you, uh, what, what's your feeling today on, on the game with fighting? And obviously, it's kind of being weeded out. And what's your take on all that? Well, yeah, it, it's, it's not part of the game's future. And it's barely part of the present. And, you know, the mandatory face masks are part of that. And I give credit to Gary Bettman because rather than saying no fighting will adopt American college rules, we will take it away from you without even your realizing it. Speaking of the commissioner of hockey, what do you think of the job he's done and do you think his tenure's uh, getting close to the edge? Or he's just entrenched. He's not going anywhere. Well, he's a, just a little younger than me, and all you have to do is look at my hair. And yeah, <laughs> you know, you're getting to, to the end, whether you like it or not. Fourth uh, quarter, my fourth for, quarter. That's all it is. That, that's it. You sure it's not garbage no, time that quarter. I'm just running up and down, Maybe. waiting for the bus? And I'm going. To, yeah. I'm going. To, I'm going. To, at least four overtimes. Oh, well, I like that. <laughs> but when I started uh, covering hockey, and you had a question, uh, about 5 o'clock you'd call the NHL office. Guy would pick up a phone. Campbell. Yeah. Clarence Campbell would answer his own phone. Yes, Mr. Campbell. And, you know, and you'd ask your question and maybe get an answer. Uh, it was basically a mom and pop shop. You know, it was like going down to the, you know, the Depaneur here, or the Seven Eleven. That was that was the NHL as a league. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was yeah, it was a local grocery store. Uh, and after Ziegler, Bettman came in, and he made it professional. This became a professional sports league. For better or worse, mostly better. Uh, you don't have the same kind of access or the same kind of feel. It was kind of nice to be covering what was essentially, uh, you know, Timmy and his uh, treehouse, and that was the NHL. But, you know, this was, uh, you know, it was something. The first Board of Governors meeting, and this was described to me by an owner, a member of the board, and they used to be very clubby affairs, right? Yep. Bettman came in, and all these rich people, I mean, there was no doubt from the moment he walked in who was in charge, and they were going to have a serious league. Quite often, at least in Canada here, oh, Bettman doesn't get it. Ah, oh, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. I will tell you this. Bettman gets everything. You know, the story about the elephant, what it is, if you only see one part of the elephant— he is the only guy who sees the whole damn elephant. Now, you may not like him. You may not want to go out for a, a pop with him. You may disagree with him. But he gets it. And, uh, you know, he and I have disagreed. Um, but, you know, I, I respect him. Yeah, he works for the owners, no question. He's done one hell of a job as far as that goes. When, you know, you'd think hockey in the States, it was so regional, and 
It wasn't on TV like it was here as much on the national stage. He got it there, which is, um, it, you know, a big accomplishment to say the least. Um, and listen, you've covered hockey, obviously, athletes in hockey, the Olympics, just being around athletes most most of your life. Um, who, I, I guess, would you say, as far as athletes, are you most affected by or moved by? In any way, I'm more moved by people who had to overcome something, who not the most naturally gifted, and that's true in life. You know, people who really made something of themselves under difficult circumstances. My brother-in-law, my late brother-in-law, for one, uh, a an assistant systems guy at the Montreal Gazette who overcame stuff to to do that. So, I mean, I love watching greatness, of course. I mean, if you can watch Barry Sanders run a football or an Olympic gymnast or, or watch Crosby and the way he corners and the way he just navigates in tight spaces or watch Flower coming down the wing or, or watch Mario Lemieux undress people, yeah, this is... The kind of thing that you like, but I've always had a soft spot for guys who say, "Okay, you know, I've made the team, and I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to do whatever I can." So uh, that—that's where I tend to go. Yeah, I didn't hear you mention like I heard you mention Lafleur and all these guys. I didn't hear you mention anything about someone throwing an uppercut, though. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> You know, I remember the first time. The I beauty saw of the uppercut. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm comparing that with your hero, Bobby Orr. Oh. And the first time I saw Orr, it was the last year of the original six. I was going to high school in Providence. I take a bus uh, on a Saturday afternoon. Bruins playing the Rangers. I paid double scalpers' price for the tickets. I paid five bucks. What a ripoff. <laughs> I, uh, 100% markup. So I'm sitting up in the balcony, end, end arena, and I sat there with my mouth open for two and a half hours because I'd never seen anything like Bobby Orr. But I was 15. And the greatest thing you will ever see happens when you're 15 because your sensibility yeah. has developed and you're still struck by it and the cynicism hasn't crept in and so the greatest joy in your life uh, will come when, when you're 15. I have a daughter who's now a reporter, works for Reuters, based in Moscow when there isn't a war. Uh, Gabrielle. I was doing a, Gabrielle. I was going to get to Gabrielle, but you jumped okay. the gun, and I love that, so go right ahead. <laughs> I was doing a story on... It was LeCavalier and Richards went over during the, the lost season, the lockout, and they were playing for Akbars. So I hung around Akbars for a couple of weeks. Well, she was crazy about Kovalchuk. So I bought a Kovalchuk jersey, and he signed it, and I brought it home to her. And she was 15, and she went nuts. In the same way that Larry uh, Robinson got a signed Brodeur stick for a son's friend who was 15 when he got it. 
This would have been in the 96 Stanley Cup, 95 Stanley Cup final. And it was seeing, giving it to him. I said, oh, there's something in the corner. He's 15. This goes crazy. And you can't do that when you're 16 because you're starting to get cool, right? Yeah. Or cynical or grown up. But when you're 15, that's great. Well, for me, it was 12. Bobby Orr, 1970, you know, uh, and then two years later at 14, the second Stanley Cup. But watching Orr sneaking into the Boston Garden as a kid was some of the greatest memories. And then, and, and, and think of this. Here I am with my best friend sitting in the aisle, okay, behind the net, um, the opposing net, and you see Orr get the puck down the other end of the rink and take off. Everybody in the building got to their feet. Everybody. It wasn't you sat there and waited till he got to the blue line. Forget about it. When he grabbed the puck in his own end of the rink, everybody to their feet, and I'll never, and you're so right on the money with that, I'll never forget that. It was like just... Just incredible um, to to watch him and to have that opportunity as a young kid. So I can certainly um, identify with that uh, along with you at that age. Now, um, you you brought up Gabrielle, and I can only imagine. Um, I went to Russia. I've been there. Uh, I, I big rough tough Chris. I I was. This was back in um, two, around two thousand three. I think the first time I went. Talk about, um, you know, homesick, culture shock. I was like, these people, like, gray was a bright color there. When I, everybody wore <laughs> black. Gray was like red there. Um, everybody had this hard look, just hard people. And I was like, man, this fucking place is, I, I, don't, I don't know. I loved it architecturally. And, and, and to some extent, I did like the people, but it was really hard to squeeze your way in there and get to know it a little. But having your daughter over there in a time like this, and, and not just in wartime, before wartime, knowing with, uh, with the president of Russia, Putin, what he's done in the past from, um, you know, uh, that poor female journalist he had off, uh, your daughter being a female journalist, is it Time magazine? Uh, she works for Reuters, Reuters. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, but you and Danielle, uh, and, and of course your son too, but it, it, were you worried at all? Like, geez, you know, she could be writing stuff about what's going on, right? She covers what's going on in the yeah. Kremlin. Yeah, and uh, does some other things as well. Uh, but you were there nine yeah, years. Yeah, I got, I'm just thinking all this. I, I was going to let you. <laughs> yeah, I was like... <laughs> I was there for four years. And, four um, years, okay. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, though. Well, she, she's been there for nine. And, you know, Chris speaks American. Well, she speaks four languages. <laughs> and, and, her, and her Russian is fluent. And she decided by the age of 25 that she would be fluent in Russian, and she is. And she got over there when she was 24. So in some way, Moscow's her home, and she had recently had to leave it and is in another country right now doing her work from there. And she left with her suitcase 
one suitcase, left her apartment, suitcase, her cat, and her computer. And, and that was tough. But, uh, you know, Moscow now is a big city. You know, it's a pretty vibrant city. Now, that's, you know, pre-February uh, 24th. But so, you know, she's lived, she's 33, and she's lived there, what, a quarter of her life now. So in some ways, it becomes, it becomes home. So, uh, yeah, as a parent, you're always worried, you know. I mean, you know, you, you know little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, she's done some, some really interesting things, including at the Olympics, breaking the story in 2021 of the defection of the Belarusian sprinter for Reuters. So, uh, you know, I'm proud of her. And one thing you can only do with your kids is give them opportunities. I mean, they have their own lives to live. And uh, I try to get out of the way as much as possible. You get out of the yeah, way. I, I rush. Yeah, I was going to say with... Um... Just from my experience, like, I never felt not safe. When I was there, I never felt, I felt safer than I do here almost. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, and, and for me, it was a lot about the people. I think that's, you know, I, I like to say there's like three phases, you know, coming over there and being the, you know, kind of the, the, the I don't know, dumb American, I guess you want to call it, just wanting things my way. And, and over time, I had to be like, I'm in Russia. This isn't, you know, America. And it was just like what, how the people did, you know, they just didn't do things that we, you know, you would expect here, right? Like maybe it'd be simple as like you get out, you know, if you come down an elevator to the hotel, the lobby, like everyone that's waiting to go in just comes in. Like they don't like, they don't wait for you to come out. Right. So like you're now I'm like, I'm knocking over like 60 year old, like, you know, Russian people <laughs> to get out of an elevator. And so like for me at first, that's like, what is going on here? And then over time, though, I just, you know, I, I had a, I, I'm very grateful that I got to live there. And I, I actually have a lot of respect for Russian people. I think people, they get, you know, they don't have a lot of emotion, but that's, they don't, they're not fake, right? Like they just, they're not going to be in an elevator and be like, hey, how's the weather? And then walk, you walk away and you're like, hey, nice shoes. You know? But I bet you got, I bet you got tired of shaking hands every day. Oh, every day, day every oh. day. I used I used to, I used, that's funny. So Nux, you had to like, every day you came in the practice, you had to shake everybody's hand. Ugh, yeah. And so, and our, our coach would come in right before practice and he would go around the room. That was the first thing he would do, go around the room. So I used to like, try to like, I'm like, there's no way that this is, you know, I was trying to beat the system. I would go like <laughs> shake the, I'd shake the coach's hand as soon as I got there. And then like hour and a half would go by. He comes in the locker room. He starts going around the room. And he would skip me. He remembered shaking my hand. Like I would think, I would try to get him to shake my hand twice, but it was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, I never got him. But that was, yeah, stuff like that. Where it's just, you know, like I said, over time you're like fascinated. You know, I mean, you obviously got frustrated, and then you just became Russian. And I, I didn't, I didn't mind that. That's at all, funny, that's sure. Mike. You know, Tim. Uh, he's talking about as a Russian coach, but he also had Mike fucking Keenan as a coach <laughs> over there. And don't tell me fucking Keenan shook your hand. Right, no, he shook he your fucking be, head. He would, if anything, he would be like he tried to be like Iron Mike, you know, like they didn't know what he was saying half the time, and he would be screaming at these Russian people, you, you know, whatever, just everything, making saying something about their wives or whatever, whatever it took. And these Russian players would just be like, uh, Tim, what are you saying? <laughs> I'd be like, He said you're doing good. Like they, just, they had no idea. What <laughs> like, well, it was we, pretty funny. We've brought up a coach. And because I know we're winding down pretty soon, 
Uh, you promised me, Chris, that I could tell a story about. Listen, uh, we don't have to wind down either boom, unless you're going to be on. going. So we're, we're not. No, I okay, don't. Good. I've got 22 percent on my computer. So if plug it in, know, we're. we're yeah, we got that excuse yesterday. Last yeah. interview, we, well, yeah. we we had we had Jay Baruchel yesterday, and he gave us the old my computer's uh, battery's dying. No, <laughs> honest to God, I, I can teasing. look at twenty two percent. But you know, Bernie Jeffreyon, one of the great goal scorers in the history of the game, one of the early purveyors of the slap shot. So he comes to Montreal as the coach in seventy nine. I'm still wet behind the ears in Montreal, doing features for the Gazette. So I'm told I got 20 minutes with him. Okay, now remember Jeffrey Ahn had burned out and very quickly in Atlanta and in, with the Rangers, so there's really only one question, is how are you going to keep it together in Montreal? <laughs> so 20 minutes, I got a push. I said, okay, so why is it gonna be different this time? I'm a changed man, okay. How are you changed? I'm not the guy I was. Okay. You know, how are you different? I'm, uh, I've changed completely and my outlook is different. Well, can you describe that? I'm not <laughs> the same guy. So I am screwed. I got nothing. So I call his wife, who happened to be Howie Morenz's daughter, Marlene. She's in Atlanta still. So I said, ah, I talked to, to Bernie today and he told me he's a different guy. Can you tell me how and what way, give me an example. And she said, oh yes, he became a born-again Christian. Oh, do you want me to read his testimony? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so she goes on the phone, I got his testimony. Now, Danielle, my wife is out of town and I'm in bed, it's 11.30 and I'm reading. The phone rings, so I think something's happened to my wife. Mike, this is the boomer. <laughs> and pardon my accent, but that's the best I can do. I said, yes, Bernie. And I had never met him until that day. You talked to my wife? I said, yes. He says, well, you can't write that. And I said, why not? And, you know, this is on the record. And she says, well, I've got a, a mother and good Roman Catholic. And if you write that, if she's got a bad heart, it's liable to kill her that I'm not Catholic anymore. So anyway, we go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, we reach a deal that uh, when he tells his mother, I will be the next call and I can write it. And being a trusting, nice guy, <laughs> um, I agree. So about six weeks later, uh, prior to that. So now I've got to do a Jeffrey on story and I got nothing, literally nothing. So I have to uh, figure something out. So I called Jiggs McDonald, who's, who was Jeffrey on's partner, broadcast partner with the Atlanta Flames. And I said, Jiggs, can you tell me a story? He says, okay, one night, you know, we're on the air and he says, Jiggs, there are only three things to hockey, shooting and skating. <laughs> And I say, that's right, Boomer, and what's the third? And he says, Jigs, that's the tree, shooting and skating. <laughs> so fast forward six weeks later, in the middle of a notes column in one of the French papers, dot, 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 uh, Bernie Jeffreyon is now a born-again Christian, dot, dot, dot. 
So I got screwed. And I never forgave him for it. And even doing a story for Sports Illustrated years later on the death of the slap shot, because you don't see too many guys coming down the wing letting fly, right? You'll see one-timers on a power play or, or what have you. But, you know, flower coming down the wing, you don't see that. So I mentioned, oh, by the way, your grandfather screwed me. This is to Blake Jeffrey on. And I told them the story. So... uh I carry a grudge. It's like Nylon and Lindsman. Yeah, no, I'm over that with Lindsman. I guess, all right, covering hockey, the superstars, Lemieux, Gretzky, Sid the Kid. Um, you know, now we see McDavid. He's still a baby in, in a sense, but who, who's that most compelling character out of those real, the, the real elite superstars? Well, because it was so individual, I mean, Lemieux was doing things that people just weren't. I mean, Gretzky was just peering around corners. And or, again, I didn't cover him really except for the very end when he was with Chicago. Uh, but watching Mario, seeing this very big guy do these remarkable things and, and make people look foolish. That was extraordinary to me. What added to it is when I moved to Montreal, I lived in Villamar. Yeah. I lived on Rue La Croix, which was three or four streets away from Jogues, which is where Mario yeah. was. And if you went to the service station on a large street, there was this big poster billboard really of Mario and, and so it felt local to me and you know his mom Pierrette would be in the neighborhood so it's about connections and this is why Montreal has been so important to me in my ability to write about hockey because uh, and Canada really because you're never more than one person removed from knowing somebody in the game when we moved into this house in 1987, guy carrying the couch was Ray Bork's brother-in-law, right? Yeah. Scotty Bowman's parents lived directly across, diagonally across the street. About six months before we sold, Buddy O'Connor, a Hockey Hall of Famer, who had lived on the street, his widow sold the house. Uh, the next street uh, behind me uh, in Verdun, Donnie Meehan grew up. Uh, I'd go to a little market just in La Salle, walk to that, and there would be Dollard Saint Laurent. Uh, and I developed this, you know, one degree of separation thing because you just knew people. Now, growing up in New Jersey, I was in Bound Brook, New Jersey at the time, and I was taken to a high school banquet where Dick Lynch, who was a defensive back for the Giants, came to speak. So I'm sitting at the back of this high school gymnasium, I guess, and there was Dick Lynch up on the dais. And that was the only athlete I'd ever seen away from a rink or a court or a baseball diamond, someone wearing a suit and tie. So they seemed far. Uh, they, they seemed unapproachable. They, they seemed to occupy a different universe. And you come to Montreal, and I presume this is 
you know, Winnipeg or elsewhere. I mean, you just come in contact. And so the game becomes personal because these aren't merely athletes. These are neighbors. These are, these are people that, that you know and or feel that you know or your brother knows them so therefore you know them or your sister dated this guy or dated a teammate of this guy in junior and so it's all it's all there in front of you and and so the game becomes very personal and and very meaningful on a level that connected that people don't have elsewhere yeah is there like a most memorable like olympic athlete uh, that you can't, you know. Well, you. I can think, you know, I, I was really lucky, but uh, you know, I saw so many neat things, including the Miracle on Ice, which w- was great. And a woman named Sylvie Frechette. Does that mean anything I to you? I recall the name. That's a, a synchro swimmer okay. who ended up getting screwed out of a gold medal by uh, a judge who pushed something the wrong thing and gave her the wrong score and it got and it got corrected finally but the day before she left for the olympics her boyfriend with whom she lived committed suicide uh. and, and what she had to go through and, and there was a canadian rower silken lauman who uh had her leg torn up in an accident on the water like six weeks before and then rode to a bronze medal, came back on an American in single skulls in Barcelona. So so we're t- earlier talking about people who had to do something. And that's the, the kind of thing that that impressed me. And, and, and Olympics are different. Uh, you know, I, I'm an agnostic about it because you can see the corruption, you can see the venality, but the performances are so spectacular. Uh, and again, uh, I, I only saw Bolt run, a, uh, run a, a heat, an early heat in the 200, only time I saw him. But if you go back, I saw Phelps a lot and had to write about him for Sports Illustrated, that there was a relay race, an American kid named Jason Lezak swam the most incredible lap uh, and pulled in a Frenchman named Alain Bernard. And to see him do that just absolutely stunned me. So if you can collect moments like that, those are what I remember more than the athletes. It's just that moment and and what it gives you. And, and because... You know, you see things you may not ever see again, and I got to do eighteen. Now, of them. I love, I love that you framed that like you did, because a lot of people who watch Olympics, we want to see the gold medal winner. That's what we want to see, and instead, right. what comes out of your mouth there, and is this a product of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat that we grew up on, ABC, wild, wide world of sports, you know, the ski jumper coming down, wiping out, you know, that thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. I think the agony of defeat is what we focus on because in my experience, uh, I know it's painful to tell two athletes this, I much preferred losing dressing rooms 
than winning dressing rooms. Oh. You know, winning's all the same. Losing, there are many more shades to it. And so I, I was always going to head to the losing room first. You know, hooray, we win. You know, here's champagne. Well, that's okay. You won. That's great. But the guys who lost or the women who lost, they're, they're generally far more interesting. Now, I have a former editor at SI who admits to a certain level of cowardice. He says, I, I was always even afraid to go into a losing locker room. But uh, Our friend Red Fisher. And, mm -hmm. and now, you're on the Hall of Fame selection committee, and I, that's another thing I wanted to hit you with before I lose you to a battery. But um, the selection committee, for the life of me, why did they wait so long to put Pat Burns in there. Why did they wait till he died to put him in? He, he had, they know he was on his way out. <laughs> Come on, the guy was destined to be a Hall of Famer coach, and he dies, and his, his wife and son have to go there and accept for him, which is an honor. That's great. But, God, to have seen Pat Burns up there accepting that, I just don't get it. Well, I can't discuss what goes on in the meetings. Okay. And that's part of our agreement. Uh, let me explain a little bit how the Hall of Fame committee works. Uh, this is my last year on it because you can serve a maximum of 15 years, and my time will be up after the meeting in June. Well, they're losing a great one. I know that. Well, appreciate it. So why does someone get in now and didn't get in before? And you can look at Rogi Vachal, for example. Well, the makeup of the committee changes, and people come in with different ideas and different views. Yeah. And so maybe that happens with some people. You say, why wasn't he in before? Or why isn't he in now? And just the committee changes. And if you want to know who the 18 members are, uh, it's easy easy to find on the Hall of Fame website. I got you. And, and I just I thought that... Yeah, that bothered me because I love Pat Burns. Listen, I only played from near the end of my career. I should have played from longer if I didn't get traded. He was um, certainly that man that I would have went through a wall for. I know it. You know, uh, when I got traded, he was in the American League with the Habs and Sherbrooke. And I remember after um, I talked to Serge about when I got traded, and I said, I, I mean, why... God, I would have been perfect with Pat Burns. He said, well, I didn't think he was ready. Well, he fired Perron two months later and, and brought him up. Like, what, two months made a difference in his career? I said, Serge, will you? Please. Pat and I got off to a rocky start yeah. uh, because they named him coach. And, and as you know, Tim, and you know, Chris, that Pat had been a cop in Hull, Gatineau. So I'm always looking to find different ways of telling a story. And so the old cliche is, who knows a cop better than his partner, right? So somehow I got, found his partner and called him, and the guy told me fabulous stories about what a cop Pat had been, what a tough cop Pat had been, undercover and the whole thing. So now I... I'm going to see Pat. This was during the week, and now two days later, whatever, I'm going to see Pat for a longer feature that 
little run in the Gazette. And uh, Mimi Lapointe, Chris, yeah. who was the Canadian's PR woman at the time, I would go into the Canadian's office. She said, oh, Pat is pissed at you. <laughs> what's the problem? Oh, geez, I don't know if he's going to do this. Well, let me see. And if he doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to do it. I don't, you know, we'll figure out another way. So I walk in there and Pat starts screaming at me. And yeah, you know, tough cop, tough cop, you know, and I put away a lot of bad guys, he says, and some of them can actually read. So, you know, one day they'll get out and they'll come looking for me and it'll be your fault. Oh. So we, you know, I said, well, you know, we'll deal with that when the time comes. But uh, we walked around his neighborhood in St. Henry and he calmed down. And we became, well, you, you don't ever become really friends because it's not that. Because I have a job to do, he has a job to do. So... Uh, but we, we had a good understanding and it was at the very end of his time in Montreal and they were about to drop his playoff series in Boston and I knew stuff had been bothering Pat and Pat was for the most part a truth teller so we're at the Marriott in Cambridge yep. and I called Pat in his room I said okay Pat we got to talk. And there was a pause, and he said, yeah, I guess you're right. So I went up to his room, and Pat basically unburdened himself on, because he knew he was done and told me everything from his perspective. And, uh, and that's what he did. And then I'd see him in Toronto. And one day I'm in his office, and uh, he says, I said, don't you have to be out of practice? He says, no, I'm just waiting to see what players are going to take charge. So we just chatted while the Leafs were practicing. He had a rule when he was coaching Montreal. Columnists, Red and me from the English side, were allowed in his office. Beat guys, talk to him in the hall. So there was a doctor named Rajon Tama who was treating AIDS patients at the time. And that was a big story. And uh, a woman had died, one of his patients, and she had claimed to have had relations with, I think, 40 NHL players. Ooh. So this was a big story. So I went to see Pat, and we're in his office in 10 minutes and talking about it, but he's not saying much. And I'm literally about to get out of my chair and say, okay, thanks, Pat. And he says... Yeah, and I've told Gates to put condoms in the training room. <laughs> and I don't want any of these SOBs to use them as water balloons either. <laughs> this is a serious thing. And he went on and on, and then I had my column, yeah. right? Uh, because Pat wasn't going to let me get away without being part of a column. Yeah. I mean, one day he's complaining to me about, oh, they make me talk to the media all the time, and... So you don't have to talk to the media. You got a Hall of Fame defenseman on your staff. Send Jacques Laperriere out there. No, no, they want me. I said you're full the of ego. Yeah, you, you <laughs> love the it. The ego jumping in there. Um, and, and again, I uh, when I think of Mike Faber and uh, us two Americans coming up here to Montreal and my return to Montreal back in 2011. 
uh, coincided with your, and I remember we sat and did an article and coincided with your bout with uh, throat cancer, right? And um, in remission, obviously, yeah. how's yeah. how's things going? How are you feeling? I'm, I'm great. Yeah. I'm great. You know, when your age starts with a 70, a seven rather, not a 70, your age starts with a seven and you get out of bed every day, hey, things are good. So no complaints. That's That's awesome. And you know, I, I I talked about that adversarial relationship between athletes and players. I never felt that with you, and obviously, um, I want to take the time and once again, and Tim here, but Tim, I I had my knee replaced uh, back in uh, twenty, yeah, what was it, eighteen, nineteen, something like that. Anyway, I had a staph infection, ended up in the hospital, went through a pretty rough bout, and you know who your friends are when. You see them visiting you in the hospital, and, and Mike came to see me. I was like, I wasn't shocked, but I was shocked. I mean, how the hell does Mike know I'm in here? And you came in, and I just want to let you know that meant a lot and it touched my heart as uh, as a friend and um, a fellow human being. So uh, you're a good man. You've always, to me, um, been a fair guy, and you're wonderful to listen to. You're the best storyteller. I just absolutely love you. Well, Thanks, Danielle and I were happy uh, to visit you under those circumstances, yeah. and uh, I'm glad you invited me on your little uh, little podcast. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, no, I that storytelling's funny because I can, uh, you know, I could go on the internet and get all this information about you, right? That's what we were talking about, and and act like and feel like I know you, and I have never met you, and technically we haven't met in person, but here I am, and and your storytelling and it's um it's it's amazing it was a, it was awesome to interview you and and an honor and i'm sure we can go on and there's a lot of stuff we didn't even yeah. cover but appreciate your time for sure mike well season two boys 